Uh, This morning's scripture reading will come from Mark's gospel in chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. And we'll have that on the screen behind me, but you're also welcome to take a moment to look that up in in your Bible or however you access your Bible, and we'll have that uh, reading together. From God's Word I read that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So we sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left. They went to the city. They found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying to his disciples, Take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Now, there is an incredible diversity in the many groupings of Christians, past and present. We have and we continue to disagree and differ on all sorts of things within the larger body of Christ. And I found some examples this week that were truly weird. Right there apparently is a German sect from the 16th century, and we call them the Abkadarians, to use the words, letters ABC at the beginning. I don't, I don't think they call themselves much of anything, but they believe that all human knowledge should be avoided. Like, they, they thought that you'd really succeeded in life if you managed to never learn the letters of the alphabet. That was how seriously they took it. There is a little-known early church offshoot called the, the Ophites, who they were just really into the Genesis narrative with the serpent, so they liked to, you know, release snakes to slither around during worship time. So, I don't know how you'd feel about that one, but, ooh. And apparently, once upon a time, there are still a few, but there used to be about 100,000 what are were called Southcottians. And they believed that a lady from Devon, England, named Joanna Southcott, was a prophetess who would give birth to a new Messiah. And she never did have that baby, but she did leave behind this fascinating, mysterious box. And her followers believe that it's supposed to be opened during a time of great crisis, in the presence of all 24 bishops of the Church of England, and then something will happen. Now, opinions differ as to whether the box has never been opened or whether somebody did open it and find some random papers, a lottery ticket, and a horse pistol inside. 
They also claimed that the world would end in 2004. So the differences between the larger Christian denominations are obviously not quite so dramatic, although there are still plenty of them. Most Christians gather for worship on a Sunday, but our, our cousins of the Seventh-day Adventists, they worship on Saturday. A minority of Christians are strict pacifists, so you, you can't be a full member of many Anabaptist churches, for example, if you were a police officer or a soldier or someone who won't swear off of all violence, even in self-defense. Most Christians, of course, practice baptism, but at different ages and using different methods. So some will, you know, dribble water gently on babies, and we Baptists like to wait till you're a little more grown because we want to completely dunk you. And one of the, the very first practices of the early church, and probably the most universally observed aspects of Christian worship, though, is that is communion. And it's not even 100% with that. The Salvation Army, for example, don't do communion or baptism, oddly enough. But the number of Christians who don't practice communion regularly is very, very small, even if we have some different ideas about what it is. And so on this Communion Sunday, having missed quite a few Communion Sundays over the past two years, I think it might be beneficial to reflect on why we do what we do when we approach the Lord's table. What is actually going on when we take our little piece of bread or our cracker or whatever that thing in the lid of the combo cups we're using now for COVID actually is? How is it supposed to affect us as we participate? So the last couple months, we picked one spiritual practice all month. For the month of April, we're going to pick a different one each week, but they're all practices of worship. And so we begin this week with communion. And I think it's also a timely subject as we head into Easter week, as we look to where the Last Supper is such a prominent part in that story. So before we participate in our time of communion, let's see if we might gain a deeper appreciation for the act. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt a little uneasy about the language and the practice of communion with its talk about eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood, but if you ever have, that's, you're not alone in that. It was a struggle for the people of the New Testament. It also led to a lot of nasty rumors and suspicions about the early Christians as well. And so before I dig into our reading from Mark 14 from a minute ago, I'm going to take a quick stop in John chapter 6, where Jesus gives a sermon that freaks a lot of people out because Jesus starts talking about how he is bread and people need to eat his flesh. And since consuming human flesh or any kind of blood was repugnant and strictly forbidden in Jewish law, this was not well received by anybody. So I'm going to read now from John chapter 6, verses 53 through 57. Because people start to get upset at what Jesus is saying, and then Jesus responds to that, and he says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. So as you can imagine, that did not help the situation with that clarification. In fact, it made it sound way weirder to everyone, and quite a lot of people stopped following Jesus after, right after that. They said, this is, this is a hard teaching. You know, who can understand it? And this is something that happened a few times in John's gospel where people misunderstand Jesus' teaching about a spiritual reality because they take his words a little too literally. But as one Bible scholar Warren Wearsby summarizes it, he says, all Jesus said was, just like you take food and drink within your body, which becomes part of you, so you must also receive me into your innermost being so that I can give you life. Jesus was talking about what it means to put faith in him, to have the eternal life he promised. 
Now, John 6 is not about taking communion because taking communion is not required for a person to have the life of Jesus within them. But there is shared language here, which is helpful, because communion is an opportunity to be nourished by Jesus in the kind of way he talks about here. Now, when we go to the book of Mark, we have what might be the most straightforward account of the Last Supper in his gospel. The final meal that Jesus shared with his disciples immediately before he was arrested and subjected to that improper trial and ultimately executed. And Jesus knew this was coming. This was the plan, as dreadful as this suffering would be on his way to victory. And because Jesus was aware of how this would play out, he planned his meal with quite a lot of care. And so with his more than human knowledge, Jesus directed his disciples to this person who would provide them the space. And they prepared the traditional Passover meal, which would have meant roasting a lamb and setting out unleavened bread and wine and preparing bitter herbs and this sauce that's made from dried fruit moistened with vinegar and wine which they would dip the bread in all together out of the same bowl. And then they ate this together. And Jesus did a lot of ministry around the table with others. And in this case, he started off by addressing some very serious business because he wants to let his closest followers know that actually one of them is a traitor. So he says this, and after a little while, Judas leaves and they eat their main course, which had to have felt pretty awkward at that point, that people must be awfully worried And then Jesus used the items in front of them to teach and prepare them for what was coming. And in Mark's account, Jesus took that bread and he broke it and he simply told them, take it. And the eat it is implied, but take it, this is my body. And for the cup, he told them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in this case, it's more clear to us that his meaning is spiritual, not physical. He gave them actual bread and wine to eat and drink. And Jesus spoke about his body, which would be broken, and his blood, which would flow from the cross, and they were going to see this soon. They would understand this soon. And he invited his disciples to make this connection between these events and between the bread and the wine. And so he gave new meaning to these common items to highlight the importance of his sacrifice, the thing that he was about to offer for them and for all of us. All right, so, so far, so good, hopefully. This might make us a little more familiar with what communion is about, what some of what Jesus' words might have meant, but it doesn't explain what we think is happening when we participate in communion as part of worship today. And this is where those differences, again, between Christian denominations come into play, because we think differently about the way in which Jesus is present when we do communion together. So some people might know that that Roman Catholics believe that Jesus is physically present in the bread and the wine, that once it's properly prepared and blessed, that that change is not visible, but that they are truly eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus when they partake. And when you move toward the Anglican or the Reformed side of Christianity, they see Jesus as being spiritually present in the bread and the cup. And so he is truly in the elements in their understanding, though they are not transformed into his actual body and blood. And then when you get a little farther down the spectrum of denominations toward the Baptist end, we don't consider Jesus to be more present in the communion elements than he is everywhere else. Jesus is omnipresent and not more present in the bread or cracker or wine or juice or whatever it is we choose to use. In our case, the bread and cup are usually treated as spiritually significant symbols that remind us of Jesus and what he did for us in laying down his life to rescue us from sin and death. Now, this matters because it changes what you think the act of communion does. 
Right? Some Christian traditions call communion a sacrament because they believe that participating in it causes God's grace to flow down onto them. The act of communion, particip- simply participating in it, has that effect in and of itself. But other traditions, like Baptists, call communion an ordinance instead of a sacrament. We see it as a practice that demonstrates our faith in God. And so in this case, the act itself doesn't do that much on its own, but rather it creates an opportunity for us to show faithfulness. And I think the bread and the cup as symbols is, personally, I think it's more correct than the Catholic view, which is, you know, shocking as a Baptist boy born and raised. That's what I see in Scripture, makes the most sense to me. But I think we should make some effort not to think too small about what communion is. And learning a little bit from our, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the church is not a bad thing in this. Because there's a risk on the Baptist side of things that we turn communion into a kind of a dead ritual instead of it being about the very word that communion means, which is communing, being present to God and to one another, connecting with our ever-present Savior and the people who are also grateful to have been saved. In Luke's account, we find a request from Jesus when he shares the bread and the cup. He says, do this in remembrance of me. But that doesn't mean we just take the wafer and we take the juice and we say, all right, Jesus died for me. Thanks, Jesus. If that's how we approach communion, then our Anglican and Catholic friends would be right to feel bad for us. Warren Wearsby notes that the word that we translate as remembrance, it means more than just in memory of. Right? You can do things in memory. Oops. We can do things in memory of a dead person, but Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And that sentence... Uh, that word carries the S idea. And this, this sentence is a little mind-bending, so maybe I'll say it twice. But Wearsby says, the word carries the idea of present participation in a past event. Right? That's got kind of a weird time travel thing going on. But the idea of present participation in a past event. The idea that what we are doing now is part of what happened then. With Jesus, who is with us now, and who instituted it then. He writes, because Jesus is alive as we celebrate the Lord's Supper by faith, we have communion with him. This is not some magical experience produced by the bread and cup. It is a spiritual experience that comes through our discerning of Christ and the meaning of the supper. So the presence of Jesus among us in communion is very important. It's what we're after. It's what the symbols of the bread and the cup point us toward. We're being invited to join in something that began 2,000 years ago and has continued by nearly every follower of Jesus ever since. And we carry on in remembrance because we believe that Jesus is with us, that he is with us in a particularly meaningful way when we carry out this act together. Just sitting in the room and listening to the words and taking the elements, that may not do all that much to change you, but when you accept that invitation to join Jesus in his supper, to seek his presence with gratitude and humility, well, that can change you a great deal. In her Spiritual Disciplines Handbook uh, that I've been using through some of these series, Adele Calhoun lists some of what she calls the God-given fruit of the practice of communion. And that includes some different things like developing a deeper love for Jesus, keeping company with Jesus no matter what happens, or appreciating the diversity of other believers who take the Lord's Supper with you. But there was one in particular that stood out to me as I was I'm working through it this time around, and it said, a growing awareness of your own spiritual poverty. And to me, that means recognizing just how little 
we bring to our relationship with God and how great our need is. Like when we join together and we partake in communion, we don't do that as a people who have life and faith figured out. We don't commune with people who have expertly lived up to our calling as followers of Jesus. We don't come overflowing with all of the strength and the wisdom that a person might want or need. We come poor. We come bearing wounds that we can't heal on our own. We come having inflicted wounds on others that we don't know how to fix. We come with problems in our lives that, try as we might, we have not been able to solve. We come as people who have not, at times, been shining examples of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus since last we gathered. We often come tired. We may even come with a sense that our faith is fragile or weak. We come spiritually poor and in need of nourishment. And when I was reading through Mark 14 this time in preparation, the part that struck me the most, the phrase that stood out, was how the disciples responded to Jesus when he told them that one of them was a traitor. And they all, they all looked at each other, and every single one, it says, kind of answered Jesus back uh, and saying, you know, oh, you don't mean me. <clears throat> you know, that can't possibly, it's not me you're talking about, right? I mean, it can't be me who has betrayed Jesus or who would betray Jesus. And of course, a little later, Jesus also reveals to Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times, and Peter cannot believe that that could possibly happen until it does. You and I also come to the Lord's table each and every time as people who are going to deny or betray Jesus, and he knows it. In the hours and the weeks and the months ahead of us, he knows that we will choose our preferences and comfort over his way at times. He knows that we will choose what is convenient over what is most right. Jesus knows that before long, we're going to treat somebody in our life in a way that is an embarrassment to his name. But that's not a reason to run away from or avoid Jesus. That is why we so badly need his presence and the presence of other people who walk by faith. Barbara Brown Taylor writes this. She says, when Jesus holds up the cup, and offers what is in it as the fluid of forgiveness, which is an interesting line, the fluid of forgiveness. He's not talking to people with a short list of minor sins. He's talking to people who will turn him in, who will scatter to the four winds at the first sign of trouble, who will swear that they never knew him. He's talking to people who should have been his best friends on earth, who turn out to not have a loyal bone in their bodies, and he is forgiving them ahead of time as surely as he had said, I know who you are. I know you will not be innocent of the blood in this cup, of this cup, but I will not let that come between us. Let my life become your life through the blood of this covenant. We're all going to deny or abandon or betray Jesus as we walk through this earth just as much as his first disciples did. But Jesus invites us to his table anyway, full of grace and forgiveness, offering us the spiritual nourishment we need to carry on. And so we come poor, and we're meant to leave blessed when we accept his invitation. So I hope that we will not have our ability to regularly gather around the Lord's table interrupted so much anymore. Now that we can come together in this way more consistently, let's not go through the motions on this. And I say that to myself as much as I say it to all of you, because communion is a rich remembrance. And to quote one final time, 
from Calhoun that the broken or the bread broken and the cup poured out signify the cost of the communion meal. Christ's blood and body were sacrificed for us, and this sacrifice becomes a pattern for our own journey. In many ways, the Lord's Supper opens us wide to a divine mystery of redemption. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And explaining the mystery may be beyond us, but that doesn't mean we can't participate in it. In communion, Christ is here for us. We eat of his body and we are part of his body, the one loaf. Though we may feel alone in our journey, we are part of the train of apostles and prophets and martyrs and saints and all servants of God. The meal reminds us that we belong and we are not alone. Because of Jesus, all will be well. I can't really think of a better note to end on, so let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. Join me in a brief word of prayer. Lord Jesus, this time is about your presence, which we believe is here in our midst as you have promised, but we are not always open to it. We can be distracted, we can be resistant, we can, be, we can refuse to open ourselves up to you because well, we know what you'll find, but you already know, and you invite us anyway. You invite us to this table to be with you, to participate in something that you began and which you are still in here and now. So Lord Jesus, be present. Be present within us. Be present among us. And help us to sense that you are near. In Jesus' name, amen.